This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our new show here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Nikolai Zikolko, Professor of Management at the Wharton School and Co-Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management. I'm thrilled to be joined today in the studio by my colleagues and co-hosts for the hour, Habia Singh and Saika Chowdhury, both professors of management at the Wharton School and the Co-Director and the Executive Director of the Mac Institute. Uh, if you have any comments or questions during today's show, please give us a call. The phone lines are open at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be joined by Ryan Miller. Um, Ryan is a senior vice president at Wells Fargo. He's leading a design and delivery team within Wells Fargo's innovation group. But first, we'd like to tell you a little bit about this new program, Mastering Innovation. Uh, maybe most importantly, we'll be live every Thursday at 4 p.m. East and 1 p.m. West. And of course, we'll have replays a few times throughout the week. The central question that we really want to address in this program is how do established organizations foster the kind of innovation that allows them to be, su be successful sort of year after year? I mean, this is a topic we've studied for many years at the Mac Institute, and we want to draw on our diverse global network of practitioners and academics to you know, shed some light on this question for our listeners. Uh, we've called this show Mastering Innovation uh, to stress that there are really two parts to the innovation problem. Right? First, there are the innovations themselves, and in some shows we want to focus on them. And secondly, there's the mastering of the innovation. Now, after all, the three of us are professors of management, so the management issues are quite salient to us. And so questions we want to address in this show include how to identify innovation opportunities, how to develop strategies for innovation, and what are the leadership and organizational issues that arise in sort of managing the innovation process in organizations. To start the conversation on innovation, I think we don't have to look very far to see the important role right, that innovation plays. I mean, there are lots and lots of rankings out there on firms One of the most recent ones we've seen was performed by the Drucker Institute, and they came out with their top 250 companies, and they created a holistic score that sort of brought together five dimensions of corporate performance. It was customer satisfaction, employee engagement and development, innovation, social responsibility, and financial strength. So you know, not to take too much stock into the exact ranking, just let me give you sort of the top 10 in alphabetical order. So there was Alphabet, or Google, right? Amazon, Apple, Cisco, IBM, Johnson Johnson, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Procter Gamble, and 3M. <laughs> Quite the interesting and diverse set of firms, but all kind of with a common theme, right? All have been really innovative. So, Javier, you know, when you saw this list, uh, what was your first reaction to this? Well, the first reaction was all these companies emphasize innovation, and all of them have actually capitalized on innovation to respond to market change. So that was the first point. And actually, if you look at this list... Uh, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, J&J, &J, IBM, Microsoft, P&G, 3M, Cisco, and NVIDIA. What you see is four companies that are about 100 years old and six companies that are less than 40 years old. And this tells you a lot. This tells you that among the most admired companies, six of them, 60%, are, in fact, younger companies. The second point is balancing exploration and exploitation. Um, Cisco, for example, grew through over 100 acquisitions. Procter Gamble created an innovation ecosystem of partners through which it created a lot of new products. And, of course, we know that Google and Alphabet are really highly innovative companies. And Apple's success really is from its apps and its ecosystem. So I think the second point I want to make is capitalizing on external innovation, mm -hmm. that innovation has to go beyond the boundaries of the firm And the last point is balance. You're balancing customers, employees. You're balancing uh, innovative resources, their short and long-term uh, payoffs, social responsibility, and still making money. So that sense of balance, I think, is a critical success factor. Well, that's fascinating, fascinating. Now, Shaika, you teach also a number of classes on managing technologies. What did strike you kind of interesting in this list? Yeah, I, I agree with Harveer and uh, on the observations. I think what's interesting to me is that a number of these companies look very different today from what they looked originally. So IBM used to be a PC company and server company, a hardware company essentially, and today it's a services company that's actually sold the original product divisions that it had. 
So that's what's interesting. In in other words, to break that inertia and remain innovative over time, it's important to be willing to really disrupt yourself in many ways, right, and cannibalize yourself. And I think that's challenging. Also, if you look at it, what's happened is different kinds of innovation have allowed firms to remain on top over time. It's not just product innovation, but often process innovation and business model innovation. Clearly, when it comes to the Amazons of this world, they've been doing it, and they've been around for some time. But Microsoft is another example. Microsoft had been a company that people had written off a few years ago, but it's moved to the software-as-a-services model in recent times. So I think that's been very, very successful. In a nutshell, I think it's more the strategy and the organization which influences how well you can evolve over time to adjust to these changes and not necessarily, per se, technology. Interesting. Now, I think this brought nicely out sort of two aspects of what we're really trying to do in this show. Kind of one is to think about innovation really broadly, right? It's not just the technology. It might be business model innovation. It might be the innovation in the ecosystem around the firm. Uh, and the second, what it brought out is kind of the challenges, right, that existing large firm have with this innovation. Now, of course, some of these, Habir, uh, as you were saying, some of these companies are younger, uh, but clearly they are now not the youngest guys on the block anymore, right? right and they're right. probably facing some similar challenges. What have you seen sort of of the kind of what used to be kind of the new young hip companies like Google? Uh, how are they struggling now kind of being large established firms in their own right? Exactly. So look at Google, you look at Microsoft. These are now gigantic companies. They have over 100,000 employees in Microsoft's case. Uh, and what they have to do is still get the elephant to dance, and that's challenging, right? And uh, that's why Microsoft almost kind of was being written off and has roared back. Uh, but I think the big issue really is to, and P&G is facing that problem, is to respond to analyst pressure while still innovating, right? So, so that balance of fiscal responsibility and spending on innovation that's the hard part. And I think these companies are big now, so they can't behave like small startups. They have to get this game right. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Shagat, you've done also a lot of work on, on thinking about how firms can right, sort of source these ideas from outside the organization. Do you see any kind of common patterns here among these sort of most innovative firms or re revered firms? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, Harbir, as you were mentioning that too, which is that, you know, it's very difficult to navigate these challenges, especially when it comes to changing mindsets, processes, uh, actual, you know, talent and doing those all in-house. So tapping into the vast pool of external sourcing, which in can include bilateral alliances, ecosystems, acquisitions, venture capital investments, I think is critical. Here we have a good example. Cisco, in fact, is a firm that has over and over and again uh, over the course of this time, periodically been able to not only get access to new products and technologies, but get new types of talent, new ways of thinking, infuse that into the organization uh, to break that inertia. And I, I absolutely agree that's very important, and we see that. What I want to comment on is Google. Uh, I think what both of you were talking about with the evidence of what happens when you grow big and established, it's not something which is foolishness, right? It's not about, we often think of Kodak or other companies like that, oh, how foolish were you? It's not that. It's you grow to a certain size and scale, it makes sense to be operationally efficient. But if conditions change, those very sources of advantage become your you know, core capabilities, perhaps become rigidities and changing over time. And Google's splitting up into Alphabet and the Google, the earlier part of Google, is, I think, a nice example of the firm trying to grapple with it. I'm not sure if that's the final solution, but that's an attempt to deal with that problem. Interesting. Now, uh, Habir, you wear many hats here at the Wharton School, and one is uh, being vice dean for global. Um, are there sort of some, some uh, aspects about global strategy here that we can also pick up? Because clearly these yeah. are all global companies, right? And they would not have gotten to the, to the top of the list if they just had uh, been just in one market. So two observations. So the first one is, is Apple really an American company? Uh -huh. right? <laughs> think about Apple. Yep. More than five times the employees are outside the U.S. A lot of it is production and uh, assembly and so on and so forth. Uh, and Apple's success factor is, in fact, low-cost production, uh, primarily in China and now in other places. Um, and, and at the same time, the ecosystem for innovation. Look at Amazon. And, you know, again, uh, many, many economies, India in particular now, the online retailers are being challenged by Amazon. Amazon's business model is actually really challenging the high flyers in the Indian internet space. So these, in fact, are global companies. Yeah, interesting. And now, Sagat, you've done a lot of traveling as well and, and thinking about how firms around the world are, are competing. 
Uh, is there anything particular in, in, in these firms that you can kind of pick up on? Well, um, for sure, there's a global strategy, but I think uh, what you're referring to is the sourcing of innovation uh -huh. globally, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there are interesting opportunities. We tend to think of firms as having uh, a central R&D, uh, which does all the work, but we can actually leapfrog by leveraging the advantages of different locations. So if you look at some of these companies that are here, say the 3Ms of this world or the J&Js of this world, They will develop products, for instance, medical devices that are have different needs, portable, for instance, in markets like the emerging markets, such as India, and then uh, bring them to the market initially in those similar markets, but eventually also globally. So sourcing innovation globally, I think, is a very, very important part of the disaggregation of the firm and thinking about multiple centers of excellence and not just centralized ones. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, that was a great start, I think, kind of thinking about some of these issues on innovation. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, uh, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zigelko, along with my colleagues and co-hosts, Habia Singh and Saika Chowdhury. Now, we're thrilled to welcome uh, to the show Ryan Miller, who joins us uh, on the line. Uh, Ryan is a senior vice president and leads a design and delivery team uh, within Wells Fargo's Innovation Group. Uh, before joining Wells Fargo, uh, Ryan worked for Bank of the West as innovation and strategy leader and at Capital One as group manager for digital product and strategy. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, congratulations on the inaugural episode as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ryan, tell us a little bit about, so what's your current role at Wells Fargo? So what, what are you exactly responsible for? Yeah, of course. So Wells Fargo's innovation group is an enterprise function, and my team specifically is is charged with helping helping put forth our, our mandate across the company. We look at new ideas, new concepts. We get involved early in the life cycle of innovation and help structure proofs of concepts so that we can collect insights from our customers and then take those learnings and feed them into whether or not the idea or the concept is feasible and viable. And as we move through that process, ultimately work towards putting a strategy, a vision, a roadmap and a rollout plan in place, as well as developing a business case so that we can secure the enterprise funding to scale and deploy these solutions across the organization. Great. So tell us a little bit about sort of how do you interact with different parts of Wells Fargo? So this is a huge organization, right? And as we all know, creating innovation in large organizations is difficult. And so you've, you have sort of an innovation group. How, how do you interact with the other parts of Wells Fargo? Yeah, there's a number of ways. It's, it's, I think, very traditional in the sense that there's a lot of pushing and pulling, right? Sometimes because of where we sit in the company and what we see in the external ecosystem, we hear of something interesting, and then we reach out to one of the businesses and present that idea to them, bring them into the conversation, see if they've heard about it, if they want to explore it further, and we offer to assist them in that journey. And other times, it's quite the opposite. We'll hear from a number of business partners Uh, organically that they want to explore a particular topic or maybe they feel as if they're at risk of being disintermediated or disrupted and as a result of that we'll reach out and, and ask for some support in exploring some of these new business models or technologies and then we'll put a team together and, and help them work through that. Great. So you, you mentioned two key words. I think it was disintermediated, disrupted, right? And uh, I think if we are thinking about the financial services industry, it's clearly one of the industries that right now is being uh, quite under attack, right, from different ways. And, and we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about this. But maybe let's just start out kind of with the, uh, you know, normal day-to-day -day interaction that a customer has with a bank, right? Because I think this has like fundamentally changed, right? When I think about how I used to interact with a bank and how now our how I interact with a bank. Um, what changes have you seen uh, that really have sort of fundamentally created challenges for you of how you operate a bank? I think it depends the answer to that question on how far back we go. Right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're right. Ago, I mean, we didn't really have contact centers and automated teller machines that now everybody doesn't even know. That that's what they stand for. They just call them ATMs, right? And so if we go back really far, it's, it's changed pretty significantly. And as I think we look at the, the broader innovation ecosystem, the pace with which things are changing is, is just increasing. So over the last couple of decades, we've become more digital. And over the last decade, we've become more mobile with smartphones. And we've got more computing power in our, our iPhone or Android devices today than we used to have in whole city blocks worth of, of computers, right? And so because of 
the, the speed at which technology is changing and the way that we're utilizing it and incorporating it into everyday life, the way that you interact with, with your bank and your money is, is changing as well. And so we're seeing a lot of the, the traditional things that I imagine many others in the financial services space are, are seeing. People are not coming into the branch for the same thing. I'm not sure that, that I necessarily subscribe to. They're not coming into the branch at all. We see lots of customers and, and prospects coming into our physical brick-and-mortar presences today. But they're, they're coming in for, for different things. And when they want to self-service, then they're expecting that they have the ability to do that. So they want more capabilities digitally. They want to have access 24-7 the way they want, when they want, how they want, for the things that they want. And so we need to be able to take what is uh, – a very, at least from, from a Wells Fargo perspective, complex set of, of businesses and all of the products and services that a customer may, may want and find a simple, easy, delightful way to deliver that to them in, in any way that, that they need or want. Can you give us some examples of what are maybe some ways in which you're changing your interaction with the customer? Is it mobile apps or is it other approaches? Yeah, of course. So from a, a non-innovation perspective, right, Wells Fargo has uh, I'd say a, a pretty complete spectrum of interaction points, everything from our, our physical channels with our branches and our ATMs, our contact centers digitally. We've got online banking that you can access, desktop, mobile, tablet, and some unique experiences within that. And then from an innovation perspective, we're constantly exploring new technologies, new devices, and developing an opinion for the organization on how, when, or if we should choose to move more into those, those spaces. So should we have a presence on Alexa or Google Home? And if we do, what does that look like? And when we move in those directions, then what are the, the additional considerations that need to be fully thought through, right? And so it's all of the, the things of, it sounds great to be able to conduct banking seamlessly while you're in your car, for example, rather than, excuse me, well, rather than being distracted, you just talk, ask a question and get a response. It's fantastic, but how do we authenticate you in that situation? And do we need to be concerned if there are other people in the car? All of those little nuances then require a lot of time and attention to figure out so that we can continue to protect and safeguard the information of our customers while still delivering these, these really seamless and delightful experiences. So clearly you have a number of technical challenges that you have to surmount there. Are there you know, business model changes that you can imagine? For example, you were mentioning you know, people conducting transactions over other platforms like Alexa or in the car. Would this impact the way that um, you perhaps as a bank make money? Certainly, I think that there's a number of business models, and we're seeing this a lot with, with startups, uh, even outside of the fintech space, they're challenging some of these models. One of the things in, in particular that I think is fascinating right now, my team's been spending a lot of time looking at the future of mobility and transportation and the impact that ride-sharing companies and subscription services have on buying and owning a car, which, which is sort of further exacerbated by some of the, the generational attitudes and, and how folks feel about that. And then also the, the density within urban environments and how that's juxtaposed with, with more rural settings where some of these services may not be as, as widely available or as widely utilized. And so as you look at things like ride sharing and subscription services, those are business models that at least to date have been introduced outside of financial services. And as people look at owning fewer cars or as those ownership models change, they're impacting traditional revenue streams that banks have had around auto finance, right? But the, the interesting part, and I think what we're starting to see as we get more into this space, is that even if a bank, and, and let's forget for a moment whether the, these models are, are being developed inside or outside of a traditional financial institution, the bank is still very much a part of this process of the, the spectrum uh, in the journey that the customer goes through, right? So if you're going to, to have a subscription service, you're going to take an Uber or a Lyft, whatever the case is, there's still a payment that's associated with it. And that payment is likely at some point routing through a bank, through your debit card or your credit card. And uh, as a result of that, we still need to figure out 
how to to interact with those players and how to respond and meet the needs of those companies as well as the the consumers that use those services and still want to interact with with us at the same time. Great, Ryan. Uh, just in case you're tuning in, uh, you're just listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zagoko, along with my colleagues and co-hosts, Javier Singh and Saika Chowdhury. Our guest is Ryan Miller from Wells Fargo, and we're talking about innovation in the financial services sector. So I had a question about uh, making choices. You know, I think you've. Uh, it's wonderful that you're doing uh, lots of things, and one has to, given the rate of change in financial services. But innovation strategy is about making choices and how do you decide where to allocate resources and what needs to be shored up and what needs to be let go. I think you were starting to talk about that. And who's involved in that discussion? Clearly, you would be, but then business leaders would be as well. Uh, so can you shed some light on that? That's something we talk a lot about as academics. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think there's there's a couple of things that play into that decision for us specifically. One of the core tenets of our innovation strategy is to put the customer first. And so a lot of what we do and, and what we try and leverage is we're looking at everything we could focus on and trying to make those, those tough decisions around where we place a few small bets. A lot of it's driven by talking with customers, figuring out what their needs are, where they want us to be, what their expectations are of us, and then channeling all of that input into where we spend our, our time and, and resources. So that's clearly one gating mechanism for us. And then another is as we, we start to go down the path of placing a number of small bets through proofs of concepts and prototypes and other explorations that we do, we start to look at the feasibility and the viability of these different capabilities or technologies. Perhaps it's a great idea, but it's not necessarily mature enough right now. So we put it on the back burner for a little while and we watch it. Or maybe it's, it's really mature and then we start to actually build out the, the business case, we look at the organizational readiness for something like this and then start to move those forward. And as we, we end up more in that camp, there's a, a broader stakeholder audience at the company that we pull in, all of our partners from legal and risk and our finance teams and the businesses that interact directly with the customers and others so that we can have these conversations and ensure that what we're putting forth make sense not only from an innovation standpoint within our agenda, but for the company at large. So what are the performance measures? It looks like you have probably non-financial performance measures initially when you place the bets, and eventually financial measures come into play. Uh, so can you talk a bit about how we know how well we're doing early on in the bets? Sure. So, so at the very beginning, I think a lot of how we measure success is through that customer feedback, right? So if we're spending, and in the innovation group specifically, we look at a lot of short sprints, right, to use uh, an agile term. And so if we're spending a couple of weeks or a couple of months on some initiative and we put it in front of customers at the beginning and at the middle and then at the end and at the end, we're, we're seeing what we've built, developed, designed as, as being validated, then that's success, right? Mm -hmm. If we get to the end and, and we hear wildly different feedback, I'd still say it's success, but from a different perspective, right? Because it allows us to capture those learnings with minimal investment fairly yes. early on versus a much longer timeline. Very interesting. Ryan, you said earlier uh, something quite interesting about you're not convinced that people don't want to come to a branch. What they're coming to is maybe different things, right? And I guess sort of the big term is omni-channel, right? Everyone talks about omni-channel. Um, and uh, if you could just elaborate on that a little bit more, because I think there's a sort of a fascinating shift of how people have been thinking about the impact on digital, right? Everyone was thinking, gosh, every retail outlet or every kind of bricks and mortar will be outdated in a couple of years. And now there seems to be sort of a little bit of a of a renaissance in some sense. And we see Amazon, right, <laughs> buying up Whole Foods and, and engaging in real estate uh, investments. So can you tell us a little bit about your thinking and your experience uh, that you've had at Wells Fargo? That's right. And with Amazon specifically, I think long before they bought Whole Foods, they started setting up little pop-up shops inside of malls and, and other places as well. So for a company that wanted to be digital only, at least initially, they've, they've done a, a pretty decent job in the last few years of moving into the, the physical world. And I think part of that too, right, is, is still as a, a result of the, the human nature to want to see and touch things, right? It's where the term showrooming was, was coined, and I think a lot of other retailers 
saw that, you'd go into a Best Buy or a Costco and you'd look at a product, you'd touch it, you'd feel it, you'd want it, and then you'd pull out your phone and you'd see that Amazon had it cheaper and you'd just buy it there. Uh, but from, from a Wells Fargo perspective, listen, we've got over 6,000 branches. We're very proud of, of that footprint and all of the, the ATMs and other touch points that, that we have. We see customers wanting to do a lot of their initial research online because in some cases it's, it's easier, it's more convenient for them. They get home from, from work, they've got other things they need to focus on. It might be 10 o'clock at night so they can start to look into uh, a mortgage product, different rates, different investment options, but then they have a question and so they want to come in and get advice still from someone in person. They want to have those planning conversations with someone that they can look at or at, the, at a minimum when they have a question, they want to know that someone's there for them. And so when we start to break down some of these different product areas, we see that when there are things that can be done from an easy self-service fashion, there's a lot of, of transactions that are moving to, to mobile for things like remotely depositing a check or making those bill payments, things like that. But when you want to have a conversation around buying a home or planning for retirement, you might do some research online, but you're still going to come in and look for the advice and guidance from a financial advisor or a mortgage officer or someone like that. Now, of course, we we learned that uh, you're also thinking about things like uh, robo-advisors, right? And uh, we've seen uh, Wealthfront and Betterment and other firms and Vanguard going into sort of more automated advising, uh, which is, of course, a different way, right, of, of, of giving advice rather than coming into a branch and talking to, to someone. Uh, so how will this play out? What do you think, Ryan? That's right. So I think you're referring to Intuitive Investor, yeah. which mm -hmm. we recently announced. And from a, a Wells Fargo perspective, we're, we're launching that product to meet today's younger investors where they are, which, which is online. And we want to be able to to deliver a convenient and low-cost way to participate in the markets and enable them to pursue wealth over time. One of the things that really differentiates our offering in the broader marketplace is that because we have this extensive network that's not just digital only, we're able to say when you want to interact digitally, when you want to go and, and lock into a certain allocation, you can do that. And if you never need to talk to a person then maybe that's the choice you make. But when you want to pick up the phone, we're here for you. And so that solution is coupled with a, a robust phone bank of financial advisors that are able to, to talk with, with folks and answer their questions. And I think it's that holistic approach that's really differentiating Wells Fargo and some of the offerings that we have relative to, to some of the others in the space. Well, I think this is really interesting, and, and we'll, we'll probably talk more about this a bit later, because I think quite often the strategy is driven by the imagery of the only customer we have is single and millennial and lives in the Bay Area. And that's clearly not the case, right? Uh, and uh, thinking about all the different customer segments that you're that you're facing uh, is really important. All right, we need to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Ryan Miller, a senior vice president of Wells Fargo's Innovation Group. You're listening to Mastering Innovation. I'm Nikolai Zikulko, along with my colleagues and co-hosts, Habia Singh and Saika Chowdhury. And this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome back. I'm Nikolai Zikolko, Professor of Management at the Wharton School, and this is Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm also joined in the studio by my colleagues and co-hosts for the hour, Professors Harbri Singh and Saika Chowdhury. Now, we're continuing our conversation uh, with our special guest, uh, Ryan Miller, a Senior Vice President at Wells Fargo's Innovation Group. So, Ryan, I was really intrigued by your point about these different uh, projects at different stages. And, you know, some, even if they don't work out, we get, we get something out of it. Uh, and the question I have is, how do we think about things that don't work in terms of failures? Uh, are there, and, and failure is too strong a term, but uh, not every innovation is going to deliver the expected value. So how does, and most companies struggle with this. So, and this is a challenge. At the same time, you know, in our in research projects, you find many things fail. So just some thoughts on how you think about that in your company. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. It's incredibly valid, especially as we look at some of the different innovation models that 
exist across financial services and, and other companies. And one of the things that myself and, and some colleagues have spent a, a good deal of time talking about is that innovation needs to help push the boundaries. We need to help surface new business models, trends, and technologies that are happening and, and be that, that catalyst for transformative change. And, and from a Wells Fargo pers perspective, specifically leveraging the customer as a way of saying what's right for us. But as we're, we're going through that process, we simply can't disassociate ourselves from, from the business and, and where the business is looking to go. And I think that that's something that, that other companies have struggled with. They'll end up with an innovation team and they decide to put them off onto the side, separate workspace, separate access, separate computers, all of that stuff, so that they're they're unencumbered by the, the traditional confines of the organization. And they come up with some great idea and then they bring it back in and they haven't talked with anyone in six months and they find that, well, it might be this, this really whiz-bang idea. It's going to be very difficult to move forward for a whole host of, of organizational reasons. And so part of what we do is we're going through the process of really looking at where to, to move the organization. We bring all of our partners along with us so that we can ensure that, that they know what we're thinking of and can ingest their thoughts early on. And, and part of that is, is are the learnings that, that we collect as well. It's the customer and it's our internal customers and it's, it's everyone else. Uh, and specifically to what you were saying around these, these failures, the, the company has to have a culture that's accepting of it. I've worked in, in a lot of uh, places before where the success metrics are often working against innovation. And it, it really comes down to what incentives drive the right behavior. And so if you set yourself up as a company to say, and, and by no means am I advocating that it has to be a quantitative metric, but if you say, uh, hey, we need to have five successful proofs of concepts this year, launch five new things, I'm not sure that that's the best way to approach it. It's about, did we collect learnings? Did we inform uh, the process? Do we feel that we're better situated as a company because we've learned something from this. We've maybe prevented the company from making uh, an investment in the technology that is not mature enough or that goes against some form of target architecture or that the customer wouldn't ever use. So we look at success as really ensuring that, that the customer's needs are met. And if they are, then maybe some proofs of concepts go away, some initiatives are, are stopped and others move forward. And, and that's the right gating mechanism to use. And so for us, that culture exists at the company and, and that fear of failure is, is one that we hopefully have removed from, from all of the folks that are contributing to innovation. Ryan, you're touching upon something very important that we scholars also care about a lot. Clearly, companies like Wells Fargo, which have a storied history, especially being very successful, they have a certain way of doing things, which they get um, caught up in. And it's the very, uh, in, it's the inertia which builds and makes it hard to then change the ways of thinking in order to adapt to changes that might be coming in markets. And you make it sound very easy, um, though many companies struggle with this. Uh, in making these kinds of changes, how do you orchestrate a change in culture, for instance? You know, incentives are one mechanism. Is there anything else that you've seen going on at Wells Fargo to deal with this challenge of inertia? I only make it seem easy because this is radio and you can't see the battle scars on my face. <laughs> so <happened>. true. <laughs> You're a master of innovation. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's really it's easy if you always have the right North Star, I feel like, right? But day-to-day, it, it, -day, it, it's difficult because there's always going to be some hurdle that needs to be overcome. And so that's that's one of the things that we look for is, is we try and recruit talent for, for the company as well, is people that are curious, people that are thoughtful, people that are flexible, right? Because the, the broader ecosystem is, is changing pretty rapidly and dramatically in, in some cases but also folks that have a great work ethic, folks that are able to be coalition builders, that are collaborative and communicative. And so as we have these ideas, we can not only collect those insights from, from customers, as, as I've mentioned, but that we can socialize them across the organization, bring our risk compliance and legal teams, our business partners, our marketing and communications teams along with us so that as we're pushing forward and trying to, to encourage the company to leapfrog in, in certain areas, 
that that it's possible, right? Nobody wants to even within the company hear that something's launching tomorrow and now their day today job or, or their responsibilities are going to change. But if they know about it in advance, then we're all part of the the same journey together. And so for us, we try and manage that, that cultural element by ensuring that we can help push the organization to think differently. And by doing that, we bring all of our partners along with us and we encourage them to be a part of that process of, of thinking differently. And I think that that's, that's really critical, right? Because as we look at the, the innovation group and, and maybe coined slightly differently, the enterprise innovation group at Wells Fargo, we don't feel like we hold the sole mandate on innovation. We're really help setting part of the organization's strategy and advancing certain principles, but we encourage all of our businesses to advance innovation within their their respective worlds, right? And so we leverage design thinking principles and a whole host of other tools to ensure that the entire company feels as if they can be innovative and that they can help move this forward. And then we're there to help and to assist and to to help move everything along together. Great, Ryan. You've been really wonderful in uh, stressing the mastering of the innovation or the management aspects. Uh, let's maybe for a second move back to the innovation part and the technology part. And I think it would be completely remiss uh, to have someone from a bank here not talk about Bitcoin, right? Uh, <laughs> or at least a blockchain technology. Um, what do you think? Uh, what's going on? Uh, how will this affect your business model? How will this affect the financial institutions? Sure. So I, I woke up this morning and I think myself, like probably many others, saw an article talking about how Bitcoin soared past 15,000, almost approaching 16,000 before dipping back to, to somewhere closer to 14,000 and, and change. It's it's certainly fun to watch. I'll say that <laughs> from 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 a, a Wells Fargo perspective, we feel that the needs of, of our customers are met by the existing fiat currencies that, <laughs> that exist today. We don't support cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin specifically, but we're very interested in blockchain, the underlying technology that supports it, because we think that it's part of our responsibility to our customers to explore emerging technologies. And so blockchain is something that has interesting applications in, in spaces like uh, trade finance and settlement. And so to the extent that we can understand how that technology can be applied to some of those use cases, and if that improves the, the experience for uh, customers, consumers, or corporates that leverage those types of financial products and services, then that's great. So we're, we're very interested in exploring blockchain and, and other emerging technologies, and we'll see, we'll see where they go. In case you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zigelko, along with my colleagues and co-hosts, Habia Singh and Saika Chowdhury. Our guest is Ryan Miller, and we are talking about innovation in the financial services sector. Um, Ryan, you just mentioned kind of all these new technologies that come up, uh, Bitcoin, blockchain. Uh, you earlier, we talked a little bit about, you know, the robo-advisors. You talked about the new mobile apps. How do you keep track on all of these new technology trends? How do you monitor this? Uh, there's so much going on. Um, probably you're not alone. You have maybe people around you. Just interesting, kind of how, how do you keep on, on top of all of this? It'd be nice, right? We walk in every day, we push a button, and, and all of a sudden <laughs> the computer just tells us everything we need to, to pay attention to. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. It, it's it, it's a, a, a complex process, I suppose, of, of building an ecosystem or building a, a set of networks within the ecosystem, right? So across all of the different business groups that Wells Fargo has, we've got a lot of internal thought leadership and, and knowledge that exists within the company, and we try and leverage that. But we don't always just look inward. It's going out, attending meetups, which for myself in San Francisco is a relatively easy thing to do. It's talking to startups, talking to VCs, talking to traditional players. I mean, all of the, the Amazons and Microsofts that you've been talking about earlier on the, the program today, uh, IBMs and, and Oracles and others of the world that are also all trying to figure out what innovation means to them and, and how to continue to adapt in, in this world. And so by having those conversations, we understand what and how they're thinking about these, these trends, as well as how they're looking to potentially influence them. And through everything that we're able to capture internally, 
as well as externally through partnerships and conversations with with universities, right? That's how we got yep. here today. Uh, it, it, it informs us to, to say, what do we look at? What's happening? Where do we go next? And we take it from there. So along those lines, um, one of the interesting questions is, uh, you talked about ecosystems. This is a concept that has become uh, salient in many industries. What can financial services broadly defined learn from ecosystems in other industries that may be further ahead or maybe may, may have shaken out in a certain way? Uh, I'm thinking about, of course, telecom and apps and so on, but even airlines, for example. <laughs> yeah, there's. I, I was reading something, this is probably a year or so ago now, about how because of the technology that exists today, we can anticipate 100 years of medical innovation within the next 10 years. And just mm-hmm. trying to, to think yes. conceptually what, what that means. Can you imagine is, that, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, right? I mean, what, what would it look like if we eliminated or eradicated the common cold and cancer and uh, what we could do with prosthesis and, and a number of other things? And so as we look at those other industries, and I think there are some, some good examples of how to leverage innovation and technology, and there are also some other examples where we can learn what not to do. It's, it's about trying to figure out how to always keep the customer at the center of, of where we're moving in the direction of while, while ensuring that we're also very safe, right? It's, it's maybe unfortunate, but if, if uh, your social media, your favorite social media network goes down for, for an afternoon, it's inconvenient. You're not able to, to share what you had for, for lunch maybe. But you're, you're, you don't have the, the same type of anxiety as if your bank goes down for a day, right? Not able to, to pay for lunch, pay yeah, any of your, your right. bills. And so we have to make sure that while we're constantly advocating on behalf of the customer, that we're also doing so in a, in a system that keeps it safe and secure and that folks have trust in us and in that system. And so it's for those reasons I think we take a look at, at what's happening in, in other ecosystems and we, we learn from them what works and we learn from them what doesn't. And then we apply that through the lens of, of financial services. You mentioned a few interesting points here. One is trust and also stability in the financial system. And this is clearly important when it comes to thinking about fintechs. Uh, not so much in the blockchain uh, type of sense, but more we see a lot of social media uh, apps, for instance, WeChat and so forth, which have become uh, intermediaries, financial intermediaries in some sense, with people lending money to each other. And uh, clearly there are some concerns around that, but also some opportunities if people can lend each other, loan each other money over these apps, and it doesn't go through a banking subsidiary. Now, I can imagine that in certain markets, such as you know um, Europe and the United States, with the financial crisis being so recent, regulators might be very cautious about allowing that. But if you go to, say, China or parts of Africa or parts of India, there are these uh, sandboxed examples of where bank, uh, countries are experimenting with allowing alternative forms of uh, trading and lending to take place, which could disrupt the intermediaries, but they're doing it because there's the potential of financial inclusion, essentially to leapfrog the uh, approaches that are taken in some other markets. Clearly, there are more risks associated with that. Any thoughts on this? Well, from from a domestic U.S. perspective, I think that as we look at marketplace lenders or alternative lenders, one of the things that we've really learned from the surge we've seen in the last 10 years in, in that, that vertical is that a lot of these companies are, are targeting specific niches that were unmet or underserved and that there's a lot of opportunity in, in some of those niche markets. And so that's uh, both something that from a traditional financial services perspective, we need to be aware of. But it also presents a huge opportunity for us to to look at relationships with with some of these fintechs, and that's where Wells Fargo, uh, again, I think is somewhat unique. We've got a startup accelerator program where we'll actively reach out to to fintechs and other startups and encourage them to apply, and we host them through a virtual mentorship program and help work towards exploring if we can leverage their solution and, and make them a, a vendor of the organization. And that's a great way where we can help some of these these, com- these new, new companies 
learn how to grow and scale at an enterprise level, which is clearly important to us, but we can also be a little bit closer to some of the innovation on on the front line. Um, Great. Uh, a man of my heart comes back to talk about strategy, uh, which uh, we, we think a lot. And it was very interesting to you say, look, again, right, there are segments in the market that are maybe underserved. And that's kind of where these new entrants are popping up. Um, strategy is about making decisions what to do and what not to do. Um, any thoughts on kind of, you know, you already mentioned, right, sort of Bitcoin itself, for instance, is not of interest to us or other cryptocurrencies. The blockchain very much is. Uh, are there other pieces where you're currently saying this is actually something where we don't want to go? I, I think we make those decisions very, very point in time, right? So we'll we'll have an idea. We'll explore that idea we'll collect a whole host of feedback and maybe we decide that it's it's not ripe right now. Uh, but I don't know if there's too much that's ever permanently off the table because the industry, the expectations of, of consumers and, and other customers is, is always changing and we need to be able to meet them where they need, when they need. Uh, so, so I don't know if I'd... I'd yeah, no, I, mean, I think there's sort of in part the, part the issue of... Um, uh, you know, let's say, you know, once you get so much information about your customer, uh, there are possibly lots of new business opportunities that you might see, right? And you're saying, well, but at the core, we are a financial institution and we are dealing with, you know, payments and we are dealing with asset management and we are, uh, but all of a sudden, right, I have information that might help me to have insurance or that might help me to do other things, right? And so that's that I was just sort of thinking about, you know, as you are coming up with new business ideas, uh, are there some guidelines are you really, really truly kind of you know we we can do what you know whatever comes up to mind wherever we think uh that might be helpful for wells fargo that that's what i was just sort of thinking about yeah and it's it's a very provocative question right and i think that it's it's one that comes back to sort of the the mission and mandate of the company and we can look at facebook as a really good example of this right one of their their uh, early mission statements which they really haven't deviated from too far is that they want to help connect people and so you can see that all of the, the developments that they've, they've introduced into their platform and the acquisitions that they've made, they all come back to helping connect people. It's not, it's not necessarily all messaging driven, although that's one of the, the main ways they look to deliver on that, that promise. Uh, but they've started to move into other areas as well because they feel like, albeit on the periphery, it's delivering on that core to, to help them help people connect better. And so from a Wells Fargo perspective, we want to help people achieve their financial goals and objectives. We want them to be more financially healthy, to go back to what you were mentioning earlier around how some of these alternative lending companies, especially in other countries, are helping with financial inclusion and, and financial health. And so to the extent that we, either within the innovation group or within Wells Fargo at large, can identify business models or products that we feel help people become more financially healthy, uh, better able to meet or achieve their financial goals and objectives, then I think they're on the table. But as we stray too far from that, uh, you know, will Wells Fargo ever manufacture refrigerators? Probably not, because <laughs> I don't think refrigerators yep. are really delivering on, on that brand promise, right? Uh, and so those are some of the guardrails that, that I guess we'd, we'd put in place. Yeah. Great. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. That was amazing. Uh, I think we all learned a lot about uh, uh, this very interesting evolving space. Uh, we very much enjoyed your, our conversation with you. So thank you again for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for all having right. me. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, Javier Saika. That was that was exciting. Um, some comments, some thoughts on this. Um, big I, evolving space, Javier. I, I thought uh, I was actually very impressed with um, three main points because I think these are all stumbling blocks for innovation the first one is tolerance for failure. I think they actually have a position on that, which I think is great. Even then, tolerating failure is hard, but at least there's an acknowledgement that, you know, this project could could not work and, and we, we should then focus on learning or cut back on investment. And the second one was this customer-led idea, which I think, again, mm -hmm. strategic innovation. I think that at least it's focused on a particular important application, so that becomes a, an arbiter on where to invest. And the third one is recognizing the importance of ecosystems. And um, I guess a question for another time or thinking further about this across all of our discussions 
is how do firms source innovation? I think that's, to me, he gave one set of answers, but every interviewee we have will probably have an answer on that. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with Ryan because not only is he very thoughtful and very deliberate in what he's doing, you know, we started the show thinking about the attributes of those firms which have been successful over time and have been able to navigate these changes and remain innovative. And he seems to really, in his organization, embody that. So if you think about the strategic and organizational imperatives, it seems so well thought out that we need to organizationally have a different group. But if it's completely separate, for instance, then it's not going to achieve the purpose of actually changing the rest of the organization, which is the classic ambidextrous organization and the problem with it. But how can we link it with incentives in order to adjust the process to be able to gradually infuse that change into the organization? And I personally would love to live more, uh, learn more about that. Yeah, no, actually that, that last point uh, I, I really struck a chord with me as well as, as he was discussing how some firms are trying to do this, right? Kind of we create this very creative, independent organization that does innovation and they come up with some really great breakthrough ideas, which you then find out are completely unimplementable to our right, organization, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think bringing that sensibility to it, you know, particularly in these large organizations where maybe these new innovations are not just standalone innovations, but have to be integrated, right? And he said, you know, how many branches do we have, right? 6,000 branches. And, you know, thinking about this as a systemic change is uh, really not really not easy. Um, uh, quite fascinating. Now, again, I think what I also very much liked about this was kind of really this, on the one hand, it's clear new technologies, right, in terms of uh, all the new ways of connecting to the customers with technologies, underlying new digital payment systems, robo-advising, blockchain, uh, and then a whole bunch of managerial issues, right, of how to actually manage a big organization and, and lead that uh, organization in that, in that direction. All right. Maybe one more thought on the on the on the ecosystem, because you know, Habia, you, you you brought that up. Um, maybe sort of- I, I think to me, uh, the bets at least they're think they're thinking about it is great. Um, and he began talking about going to these events in in the Bay Area about other ecosystems. I think one of the things that ecosystem players all need to learn is, you know, the, your ecosystem is a lot broader than your industry. Mm-hmm. So how do you actually go beyond your industry? How do you actually pick up an idea from a different domain that you bring in? I think, and I think they are geared for it. But I think that's that's an interesting challenge. Yeah. Let me push that idea yeah. a little bit further, which is that everybody in their own industry thinks that the challenges they face are unique, right? Mm-hmm. But actually, they are not. You know, when you hear about the basic strategic and organizational aspects, they are very very common. And so that was fascinating to hear. And to your point, Harbir, I think to look beyond and see, well, disruption hasn't been happening much in financial services, but it has happened elsewhere, would be useful. Great. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Uh, a big thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, remember, we're live every Thursday at 4 p.m. East, 1 p.m. West. Uh, if you have a question about something you've heard on today's show, please send us an email to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Uh, be sure to follow our show on Twitter at bizradio111. And, of course, you can follow the Mac Institute at our own Twitter handle, at Mac Institute, where we'll be also posting about the show. Once again, special thank to our guest today, Ryan Miller. I'd also like to thank our producer, Dana Cash, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Until next time, I'm Nikolai Sikolko, along with my colleagues, Habia Singh and Saika Chowdhury, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.